Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and together with Bruce, we have written 36 cookbooks, including the ultimate party drink book <laughs> years ago. So long ago, but still imprint a book with hundreds, I don't know, hundreds of cocktails My in it. My favorite, frat boys do lunch. <laughs> I think it was like beer and Bloody Mary mixed together. You'll have to look that up. <laughs> Frat boys do lunch. Really a terrible cocktail that we came up with. But full of lots of other cocktails and classics too. And we're going to talk a lot about cocktails in this episode of Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And we'll talk about the theories. There are several of them about where the name cocktail came from or even the concept of of a cocktail came from. We've got a one-minute cooking tip, which has nothing to do with cocktails. Bruce is going to interview Michael Ruhlman, the legendary Michael Ruhlman. He's the author of a brand-new cookbook, The Book of Cocktail Ratios. Oh, you have to stick around for that. And, of course, we'll talk about what's making us happy in food this week. So let's get started. Where words come from always is fascinating to me. And the word cocktail is no exception. I was trying to figure out where it came from. I was doing some research and there are several theories. And most of the theories all go back to the UK. Interesting that they go back to the UK. Mm -hmm. The first theory that we want to talk about is that the word cocktail comes from a description of a horse with a docked or clipped tail. Apparently, back in the day, a docked or clipped tail was a sign that the racehorse, this was particularly in racing, was not a pedigree, but was of mixed breed. The I like mutts. I like mutts, even in the horse world. <laughs> the cocktail horse was therefore considered a mixed blood, of course, mixed breed, and thus the term mixed was believed to be associated with the mixed drinks undoubtedly sold at those races or served at those races, and thus the term cocktail. I have to tell you, when I listen to myself say this etymological explanation for cocktail, it seems super far-fetched. <laughs> there seems like a lot of steps you have to go from docking a horse's tail, a racehorse's tail, all the way up to getting to this to be the name of a drink. There's, there's a, and, how do I say? There's a lot of slips between the cup and the lip and, in this yeah, explanation. No. And the only connection is mixed, right? Mixed breeds, mixing things in your drinks. Yeah. And quite honestly, in the 19th century when this was supposedly going on, Mixed drinks weren't a huge deal either. It was like, no. you know, brandy with something maybe. That would be about the end of it. Yeah. It, the, you know, so, of course, etymology of common words like united, subject, drink, those are pretty easy to trace down. Now, they get funky when you go way back in the background somewhere and back beyond Middle English or Old English or Middle High German or Old High German. When you go way back in the mists somewhere, etymologies are really hard to track down. And as you know, and this is a thing that always drives me crazy, people do not speak etymologically. People don't talk as if they understand the etymology of words behind them. Uh, Nor should they. It doesn't really no. matter, does it? I mean, no, does it matter where the word came from well, to be able to use it properly? Well, okay, so I'm going to verge over into my other world of literary studies since I do lead literary groups 
groups and since I do run a long-standing book group and since I have this podcast about Dante a lot of people say you know oh the Dante uses this word in the comedy because the etymology of this word is X and I always think to myself but I don't speak etymologically, so why would Dante speak etymologically? It's it's just a, it's always a bit of a to me a what a tenuous assertion. Mm. But this one seems like it's got so many ifs. Oh, if yeah. this were true, <laughs> if this had been the case, if this had been the case, if this had been the case, then we get to cocktails. Okay, well the next one it's all based on an egg cup. And in France, an egg cup is pronounced coquetier, right? So coquetier kind of sounds like cocktail. And it ended up transferring sort of. coquetier to cocktail. And here's a deal. In New Orleans in the 1830s, the apothecary Antoine Peychaud, the guy who made the Peychaud bitters. Which are rather infamous. They are. Well, he was known to drink brandy and bitters together, his little cocktail, out of an egg cup oh. or a coquetier. This one doesn't seem to have as many steps to it <laughs> to get to cocktail from this. Because here we have a guy in New Orleans drinking a mixture out of an egg cup and not no, no sneer about New Orleans, but we know that New Orleans French even by the 1830s, wasn't standardized French. It had been uh, mixed with all different kinds of languages. Indigenous peoples' languages with African dialects. Pronunciation had shifted in New Orleans French. So it strikes me that, you know, even if we were to say that word for egg cup perfectly in Parisian, there may be a way that it was flattened or said slightly different in New Orleans. And therefore, here's this famous apothecary and he was Antoine Peychaud was really well known he was so people would know what he drank out of I mean it was a thing and supposedly it's true that he would drink his drink which was brandy and his bitters out of an egg cup so hence the word cocktail there's another theory from the UK that says that tavern owners used to mix the dregs of various spirit barrels in order to minimize waste and this could then be sold at a discounted price the customers and the term cock was used to describe the tap of the barrel. So the dregs of the barrel were, in fact, really actually called cocktailings because they were the dregs of the barrel that had been mixed together. This, of course, isn't a cocktail because this is just throwing a bunch of crap <laughs> together garbage. in this a, is just... in a in a, in a barrel yeah, and selling it. Yeah, it's garbage, and I don't like this one because this is a big stretch for me. You're mixing together garbage and calling it a cocktail. And a lot of drinks you can get in places taste like garbage, but I don't really think <laughs> that's, that's where that came Bruce from. Bruce has a theory that all the... All the fine fruit juice, all the fresh squeezed orange juice and fresh pressed pear juice in the world cannot make up for the taste of bad booze. Oh, it can. That bad booze will override even the best of other ingredients because it just will override it with the burn. But let me tell you, when you go to places that are using bad booze in cocktails, yeah. they're not using the finest of fruit juices either. No. <laughs> Basically, they're using corn syrup Generally punch. Not. 
corn syrup punch and rot gut rum. Mm. Well, and the together reason, at last. The re- and, and listen, we don't have an answer to this because nobody has an answer to this. But the reason that this idea of cocktailings, of mixing the barrels together, might hold true is that there was a way, particularly in cocktail culture in the early 20th century, and now sorry, I'm going to pull out a little bit of my historical knowledge here, but there was a way that in the Great Gatsby world, having a cocktail was seen a little bit, and I know this is going to sound funny, as slumming it because you were mixing drinks together and it was considered kind of this elitist upper class attempt to uh, play at slumming it because real alcohol is just bourbon or just rye or just gin or just vodka and mixing it with other things is what the lower class did and so in Gatsby and other things when you have a cocktail party they're playing at being underclass so it may relate somehow here to cocktailings out of barrels and where does that idea come from is that that people of lower classes are trying to stretch the booze because it was so expensive they would stretch it by mixing things with it rather than just taking it straight so you would take and you would buy cheaper booze let's say rot gut grain alcohol and you would Mm. because it was it was less expensive and then you would mix it with fruit juice to stretch it and also because it's so wildly high in alcohol but then cocktail culture became this kind of uh, uh, empire period jazz age fad in which you were pretending to you know slum it a bit yeah, I, I I don't know I'm trying to I'm trying right now to think <laughs> up an example in my mind It'd be like if Elon Musk showed up up at TGI Fridays or something and I had dinner <laughs> right I mean oh it, yeah it, the man's gonna go to TGI Fridays okay. for I'm dinner. saying it would be or if he threw a party. And he pretended all the food was catered by TGI Fridays. It would be, it would like be. I actually can imagine him doing something. Okay, that dumb. me too. And so you pretend to slum it, and that was that was a big part of Empire period sure. of jazz age cocktail culture. Well, the last theory we're gonna throw out there goes back to horses. So back to the racehorse example from earlier, a cocktail didn't just mean a horse wasn't purebred. It was also used to say a horse was full of vigor and energy. So horse breeders and sellers were known to give horses, well, spicy suppositories, ginger, cinnamon, and it made them, you know, not happy. Um, got them bucking and moving and full of energy, and they seemed youthful and energetic, and they got a higher price for them. So the relationship to drinks is that people would add the same things, ginger, cinnamon, and pepper, to their beverages, the same thing that went up the horse's bum. Oh, so uh, I don't know. I don't. That seems like that one seems like it's got another lot of ifs <laughs> to get to my drinking a cocktail. I mean, I know that horse trading, especially in the 19th century and early 20th century, was rife with scams. Mm. Uh, there's a mm. Faulkner. Well, I'm being alliterated today. There's a Faulkner short story about giving horses ginger. No, no, no. About no. this guy that tries <laughs> to sell this this withered old horse that's just in on its last legs, right? And he puts a a bicycle pump, essentially, in it, and he pumps it full of air so that it kind of the skin goes away from the ribs. Well, that's putting something inside of it. And the thing looks bigger. And then as the country boy who buys it rides at home, it gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner. And, you know, finally he realizes he's been rooked and all that stuff. I'm kind of like me after a colonoscopy. (laughs) They fill me full of air. 
and then it all goes away. It's the, ba- it's the best. I love colonoscopies. <laughs> I can't, yeah, I can't th- See, we're talking about putting stuff up there. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I have a whole prep thing. Uh, I, I, It's my chance to watch endless reruns of the $20,000 pyramid. So I sit up all night watching the $20,000 pyramid. Isn't this gross? This is what you talk about when you get to be our age. So these are th- four of the most dominant theories about where the word cocktail comes from. It is a super slangy word, and slang words are the most difficult of all words to track down because they enter the vocabulary kind of on the underside. They enter it in speech rather than in print. They're really hard to track down in terms of where do they come from and how do they originate. But these are the four most common terms. Before we get to our one-minute cooking tip for this podcast, let me remind you that we do have a newsletter. It goes out every two or three weeks. So long in there. If you would like to be a part of that newsletter, it is not related to the content of this website. Sometimes it's lifestyle stuff. Sometimes it's Bruce's knitting. Sometimes it's recipes. It's all over the place, really, to be honest with you. But you can find it <laughs> on bruceandmark.com. It's always you, fun. You can find an email sign-up uh, subscription site there. Let me just also say that I have locked my vision of your name and your email, so I will never see anything about you. I do this so that I can't and no one else can, the provider can't, sell and capture your email for other email lists. So you can sign up there for our emails, and we would love for you to be on the list. Okay, our one-minute cooking tip. Buy deli containers with matching lids. Okay, uh, deli container. Just d- explain this one real quick. You carefully. know, when you go into the deli and you get a pound of coleslaw, they have those plastic containers wow. that they put it in. Wow. I mean, can you be no more New York? When you go into the deli and buy a pound of coleslaw. What are you going to buy? A pound of foie gras? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Or a pound of chopped liver. Macaroni maybe. salad. Noodle kugel, a pound of noodle kugel. Macaroni salad. Go <laughs> Kanishas, on. you buy a pound of knishes. Okay. So here's the wow. thing. Every time I open my Tupperware cabinet, I don't like to be faced with all those containers and the missing lids and the lids I have don't fit and I don't know where they are and I hate it and everybody hates it. So I order and Mark orders for me inexpensive packages of plastic reusable deli style containers. One quart containers. Here's the thing. Always order the same brand, and that way you know your lids will always fit the bottom. Right, then you can just shove them all, as we do, at the bottom of the pantry, and there's lids and, and containers. Just throw them on the direction. floor, but you could pick up any you want, and you know they'll fit. So there you Excellent. Go. That's exactly what happens in our house. They get thrown <laughs> on the floor. Before we get to Bruce's interview with the legendary Michael Ruhlman, let me say it would be great if you could rate this podcast, if you could write a review. Even Great Podcast does wonderful things for us. We are unsupported and have remained that way so that we can oh, talk about what you shove up the rear end of a horse <laughs> in our podcast. Oh my God. Uh, that would be great for us. It's great for the analytics. Thanks for being part of the podcast journey with us. All right. Without any further ado, Bruce's interview with Michael Ruhlman about his new book, The Book of Cocktail Ratios. Today, I'm speaking with legendary Michael Ruhlman, the New York Times bestselling author of nonfiction, including Grocery, The Buying and Selling of Food in America, and the bestselling cookbooks Charcuterie and Ratio, The Secret Codes of Everyday Cooking. His latest book is The Book of Cocktail Ratios, and I'm delighted to spend some time this morning talking all about how to make the perfect cocktail. Welcome, Michael. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Hey, you start the book off by saying that if one thinks they already know how to make a great cocktail, they're probably right. So how can your book of cocktail ratios help already solid home bartenders? It, it goes back to the basics. We kind of live in a craft cocktail era where cocktails are becoming more and more extravagant, requiring very specific spirits and very specific amari and uh, and aperitifs. And I wanted to go back to the basics and simplify things. And once you have the basics, then you can, one, you know how to make great cocktails because the, most of them are quite simple. Uh, and second, you know how to improvise and um, adjust them to your own liking. Uh, they're real, you know, we, we've, I think we've overcomplicated things. And my, my hope was to bring us back to a simpler, more manageable time in the, in the cocktail world. Well, let's talk about improvising for a second, because we always talk about how it's easy to improvise in cooking, but not necessarily in baking. Where you can't improvise there, how easy is it to improvise knowing the ratios of cocktails? Um, it's, it's very easy when you, when you realize how, how cocktails work. A good example of this is one of the things I learned in writing this book is how powerful liqueurs are in small amounts in a, in a great cocktail. So if you take, for instance, a white lady, which is basically a gin sour with, um, with egg white, and I realized that if you added a teaspoon of maraschino liqueur to that, it becomes a whole new cocktail, great cocktail. Peter Meehan took the Hemingway daiquiri and added a little bit of absinthe to it to create another great cocktail called The Sun Also Rises. So it just gives you more leverage and allows you to be creative when you get tired of, say, mixing that same old Manhattan every day. Michael, you've been obsessed with ratios in cooking and pairing recipes down to their essence ever since your book, The Making of a Chef. Tell me how the experience way back then of working with professional chefs started you on that particular bent. Chef Uwe Hessner, who is an instructor at the Culinary Institute of America, I was interviewing him for the, that, the book you just mentioned. And we were talking about what you needed to know in order to be a chef. And he swept his hand at his voluminous bookshelves, buckling under the weight of hundreds of cookbooks. And he said, you know, I can show you the contents of all these books in two pages. Would you like to see? I said, oh, yeah, I'd like to see that. And he turned, he spun around in his chair and from an old metal filing cabinet, took out uh, a sheet, basically a page and a half of ratios, 28 preparations, all broken down into uh, their fundamental components. For instance, for Hollandaise, he had broken it down to one pound of butter and three yolks. And that was it. And I thought, really? What about lemon juice as main seasoning? And what about, say, salt and pepper? Or what about a, a more advanced... Uh, vinegar reduction. But then I thought, well, if you take away the lemon juice and if you take away the salt and pepper and the reductions, do you still have a sauce? I said, well, you, it'll be bland, but you'll have a sauce. If you take away the yolks or if you take away the butter, you don't have a sauce at all. So he reduced the hollandaise sauce to its fundamental components. And I found all these ratios that he had so compelling. I had a friend uh, with beautiful handwriting, write them up on a grid, and I had it framed, and I hung it over my sink, and I would just stare at this these ratios uh, while I did the dishes. And I did this for years, and I thought, God, this this sheet has fascinated me for so long. I need to explore this in a book. And that's how the book uh, Ratios, The Simple Codes Behind the Craft of Everyday Cooking came about and solidified my love uh, of ratios and my knowledge of how important they are. And during the pandemic, our group of five, um, one of the daily rituals was to have a new cocktail every night. And that was really fun. 
And I realized that, God, all these cocktails are basically the same thing. There's so, there so much similarities between the cocktails. Like a, a, Manhattan, a Manhattan made with scotch is a Rob Roy. A daiquiri made with uh, gin is, in effect, a gimlet. And so I wanted to explore those families and explore their, those ratios because that's really all a cocktail is, is a ratio. Um, of the, and a ratio is really not a recipe. A ratio is a proportion, the proportion of one ingredient relative to the other ingredients. Hey, Michael, tell me about the first drink you ever had. Well, the first drink I ever had was um, I was eight years old and it was a martini. Nice. <laughs> My dad set his cocktail down and I was staring at it. He said, it's a martini. And he said, go ahead, have a sip. And so I tasted it. It was revolting. He chuckled. Um, the light turned green and we headed up Cedar Boulevard to pick up the babysitter. This was, of course, back in the days where he just often took a roadie with him, something uh, we don't do these days, thank God. Um, but that was really my first sip of a cocktail. And I would go on to become a, a staunch martini drinker. But the real cocktail I had that changed things for me was a, a daiquiri. I'd only known frozen daiquiris and fruity daiquiris and strawberry daiquiris. I'd read that Hemingway drank rum and sugar and lime, basically. And so I made this classic daiquiri, and I was astonished by how delicious it was and how simple it was. Um, and that was really my beginning of the, uh, my, my, my love of real cocktails. And when you're making cocktails, how important is technique? Technique is, again, it's so easy. It really is a matter of measuring uh, and then of mixing. How do you mix? Either you shake it or you stir it. There's a common adage among bartenders is that if you're just mixing alcohols together, you only need to stir it. But if you have a number of ingredients with differing viscosities, it really makes a difference to shake the cocktail to make sure they're thoroughly mixed. And I didn't believe this for a while, um, but I talked to a great bartender, Phil Ward at the Long Island Bar in Brooklyn, um, and he convinced me to, to give it a, a, a taste test, a try. And so I made a margarita by stirring it. And I made a margarita by shaking it, exact same ingredients, exact same proportions. Uh, and I gave each to my wife. Uh, they looked different. Um, and she tasted, tasted the stirred one, said, okay, that's a good margarita. And then she tasted the second one and said, oh my God, this is delicious. What's this? I said, it's the exact same drink. I just shook it. Wow. Um, so yeah, it really makes a difference. Cocktail ingredients have expanded exponentially over the years. For instance, bitters can now come with everything flavored from chocolate to chilies. And what's your take on using outrageous flavors like that in drinks? Or are there just some basic bitters we should always have on hand? My favorite story about bitters comes from Jeffrey Morgenthaler, a bartender in Portland. And he had a great bar there and cocktail aficionados would come in. And he was getting a really judgy vibe from one cocktail aficionado and who said, what kind of bitters do you have at this bar? And he didn't like the guy, <laughs> uh, but he he... He took three bottles off the shelf and he said, we have all three. And these were, of course, the classics, Angostura bitters, Peixot bitters, and orange bitters. Those are really all you need. Uh, we don't need chili bitters or celery bitters uh, or you know bacon bitters. That said, my wife got me some uh, Bitterman's Mexican chocolate bitters, and they work absolutely beautifully in a Manhattan. Mm. So the answer is it depends. If you if your tastes, if you want to give it a shot, go for those cardamom bitters if you want. But again, you really only need three bitters. And I rarely use Peixot's bitters. So it's really the Angostura and the orange bitters. Uh, and I use orange bitters in, uh, in a martini. The Manhattan, as you say in the book, is one of the oldest cocktails that we're still drinking. How does the ratio of bourbon, vermouth, and bitters work in a Manhattan? And 
How is it, as you say, the most emblematic? Well, a Manhattanist is two parts whiskey, bourbon or rye, one part sweet vermouth and bitters. That's all it is. And it really goes back to the basic or one of our most fundamental cocktails, which is the old fashioned, which is sugar and whiskey and bitters. In the Manhattan, they just swap out the sugar for vermouth. They sweeten it with vermouth. It's just a rock solid cocktail. It's it's so good that the quality of the, of the whiskey really doesn't matter. You can have a really great bourbon and it will be just as good a Manhattan if you use Maker's Mark. Well, Maker's Mark is still a fairly high shelf bourbon. Uh, what's your take on making cocktails with well booze as well as high shelf stuff? I am in favor of going cheap if that's what your budget, if that's all your budget allows for. I'm a skin flint myself and uh, appreciate economy. And with the Manhattan, Manhattan probably is the best cocktail to make with a well drink, with a 10 high mm -hmm. um, and uh, and an inexpensive vermouth, you'll have a decent cocktail. I have to ask you about margaritas. And now I'm not going to talk about the blender slushy fruity ones like that first uh, daiquiri you had, but everyone has their own formula combining tequila, some sort of orange liqueur and lime. How do you decide what the right ratio is? And then on a personal note, are you a salt guy or a no salt guy? The, the margarita was fascinating. When I went in to explore it, I found so many variations. The head, the head spun. Some had equal parts tequila and liqueur. So where do you go? You go back to the fundamental ratio. A uh, margarita is basically a sour. It's a tequila sour. And the basic sour ratio is two parts spirit, one part citrus, one part simple syrup. Our modern taste, I've reduced the amount of simple syrup and lime juice. Um, so it's not quite two to one. I think modern tastes are, and, and most bartenders are in agreement with this, that a, a great sour ratio is two parts spirit, three quarters parts citrus and three quarters part simple syrup. That makes a really nice sour. Where do you stand on salt? Yes or no? Tequila loves salt, but I don't want a salt lick on my on the rim of my glass. You get way too much salt that way. So I I will add a pinch of salt to a margarita, and that really does enhance a cocktail. Michael Ruman, your new book, The Book of Cocktail Ratios is out. It's fabulous. It'll help everybody become a better bartender at home and understand how cocktails are made so they can perfect them for their own taste. Thanks for spending some time this morning with me. Thanks so much. Great to be here. I have to say, for our little podcast, you score some big <laughs> interviews. Hey, I put on the charm. No one could say no to you, me. You clearly do. We had on the barbecue master a couple of weeks Ryan ago. Ryan Mitchell. Yeah, and now he's been on All Things Considered, and he's been on the Today Show. And I have, I'll have you know, we were the first. He we, was on Cooking with Bruce and Martin before he was any place else. It was a world premiere interview for his new book, and I, we had it first. That's kind of crazy. Bruce really works hard at nailing down these interviews, and and Michael Ruman wasn't actually hard to nail down. You said you wrote him, and he wrote back. He'd love to I be I wrote him, it. said, hey, Michael, want to be on? He was like, sure. Yeah, but some of them, you work very hard at massaging publicists yeah. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. authors and all that. Uh, Michael Ruman was great. It's I mean, kind of shocking, though, that we hadn't connected before we've been in the same business together for a long time yeah it was the same books with and... that old interview i did with david Joachim. yeah he yep. just instantly wrote back and said yeah i'd love to but other people <laughs> oh gosh help me influencers and such uh often require a great deal of massaging or they want a big fee or they want a fee i'll and, come on your podcast but they want a fee we don't allow anyone to charge a fee to be on this podcast nope. okay enough about us so our last <laughs> segment as is traditional what's making us happy in food this week Thank you.
potato chips, and I know I've said this before, <laughs> but it's the potato chips God. made at the Big Y supermarkets. They make oh them in the back God. where they fry the shrimp because into the fish, and they're hand cut, and they're dark brown, and they're salty as hell, and they're delicious, and I bought a giant bag of them yesterday, and they're almost all gone. What's making me happy in food this week is related to someone who has been one of those interviews on this podcast. They are beans that Bruce buys from Macienda, from uh, Jorge Gaviria. Gaviria. Jorge Gaviria. And if you look back through the episodes of this podcast, you can find the interview with Jorge Macienda. Oh, their beans are just all their products. They're mind-boggling. Their hominy, their masajarina, the beans—they're all grown in Mexico on Mexican farms for Jorge. And these beans are geez, these acayote pintos, and their package has five different colors, and they hold so their shape. Amazing. They're earthy, the mushroomy. texture is ridiculous. We had them last night with collards and a little smoked pork hock, and oh, it was delicious. So delicious! It was such my southern childhood. I couldn't imagine it. Well, that's our podcast for this week. Thanks for joining us. We know there are lots of podcasts out there, but thank you for taking time to listen to ours. We certainly appreciate that. Hey, what's making you happy in food this week? Let us know at Cooking with Bruce and Mark group on Facebook. Join the group and share what's making you happy with food and answer questions and see all sorts of fun recipes and videos I put up there. And subscribe so you will not miss a single episode of this podcast, also Cooking with Bruce and Mark.